At times, history and fate meet at a single time, in a single place, to shape a turning point in man's unending search for freedom. So it was at Lexington and Concord. So it was a century ago at Appomattox. So it was last week in Selma, Alabama. There, long-suffering men and women peacefully protested the denial of their rights as Americans. Many were brutally assaulted. One good man, a man of God, was killed. Many of the issues of civil rights are very complex and most difficult. But about this there sh can and should be no argument. Every American citizen must have an equal right to vote. Welcome back to part two of Voting in America. My name is Stephanie and this is my co-host Sandy. Hello. So, you know, we talked a lot about voting rights and what happened to people who tried to exercise their right to vote in last week's episode. And, you know, it was dark, it was sad, but it is important to discuss. And with elections right around the corner, I thought it was also important to shed light on an ongoing issue in America, an issue that started way back at the inception of the country and continues to this day. So I will be doing a brief, I say brief, but it's a lot because <laughs> it's very, very complex. Yeah. But I'm going to be doing a brief history on how voter suppression began, how it has been implemented, and how we continue to fight it today. All right. I'm ready. All right. Let's get into it. So limiting access to voting is deep-rooted in American history. Beginning with the Founding Fathers and peaking during the Jim Crow era in the South, simply put, Jim Crow was the former practice of segregating Black people in America. In the wake of the Civil Rights Movement and the Voting Rights Act of 1965, which outlawed the discriminatory voting practices Adopted in many southern states after the Civil War, the idea that disenfranchising legitimate voters, which was unethical and even un-American, had gained traction. Voter suppression in America uses various efforts, both legal and illegal, to prevent voters from exercising their right to vote. Voter suppression efforts vary by state, local government, precinct, and election. So how did early America decide who deserved the right to vote? I'm going to get into it, and a lot of things might overlap with some of the stuff that Sandy discussed last week, but it's going to have like a different perspective or a different point of view. It's going to be just slightly different, but mm -hmm. you're going to hear a lot of the same things coming up because well, it is just what it is, voting rights and mm -hmm. the, you know the process by which we got here. And it's relevant to what you're talking about today. Yeah. And I think you go into a little bit more detail yeah. about certain things. <laughs> yeah. So in 1787, the Founding Fathers grappled over how to address suffrage in the U.S. Constitution. At the time, voting was restricted to wealthy white landowners. The landowners debated whether it should be extended to commoners who had joined arms with them in the American Revolution, but who might overrule their interests. Ultimately, the question was left to the states in Article 1, Section 4 of the Constitution, which declares, The times, places, and manner of holding elections for senators, representatives shall be prescribed in each state by the legislature thereof, but the Congress may at any time by law make or alter such regulations. An American university historian, Alan Lichtman, stated that this decision has had profound lasting consequences for American democracy. By not giving U.S. citizens an explicit constitutional right to vote, the Founding Fathers effectively decoupled voting rights from citizenship and denied those whom states barred them from voting any recourse through the federal government. So that's kind of where it all started. You know, the, mm -hmm. right, the fact that it wasn't written directly into the Constitution yeah. has had horrible consequences for so many people, specifically black people and minorities of in course. the U.S. Come on, Hamilton. I know. 
In the years that followed, voter requirements varied widely according to the whims and prejudices of individual states. While most expanded eligibility at first and ultimately provided near-universal suffrage for white men, states began to impose new restrictions. In 1800, only five of 16 states had instituted white-only voting, which is good. Five of 16. I mean, it's good, not great. Yeah. But only two years later, from 1802 and on, every new free or slave state to join the Union except for Maine had banned black people from voting. In 1807, New Jersey, which originally gave voting rights to all inhabitants, passed a law to disenfranchise women and black men, and Maryland banned Jewish people from its polls until 1828. Mm. Is that with the religious test that they were giving out? Is that why they banned Jews? Because they only wanted Christian? It could be. Men to vote? Okay. When the Civil War ended in 1865, however, the federal government waded back into the issue. During Reconstruction, which was the turbulent era following the Civil War, and the time in which efforts were made to reintegrate southern states from the Confederacy and the four million newly freed slaves into the United States, three amendments were passed, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. They were designed to ensure equality for African Americans in the South. The 13th Amendment, ratified in 1865, abolished slavery and indentured servitude. The 14th Amendment, ratified in 1868, gave African Americans equal protection under the laws. However, it wasn't until the 15th Amendment, which was ratified in 1870, that states were prohibited from disenfranchising voters on account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. The 15th Amendment, however, did not actually provide automatic voting rights for African Americans because Congress did not provide enforcement for the 15th Amendment immediately. It left states in charge of elections, and many of them soon set out to suppress these new rights. So how did they do this? Let's get into it. During the Reconstruction, political life opened up in the South. Southern states started enforcing rules commonly known as the Jim Crow laws, which mandated segregation in public places, particularly between white and black Americans. Poll taxes discouraged those who could not afford to pay them from voting and were a prerequisite to register to vote in Jim Crow states. Poll taxes disproportionately affected black voters who made up a large population in the antebellum South. Poll taxes continued well into the 20th century, and as of 1964, Alabama, Arkansas, Mississippi, Texas, and Virginia continued to cling to them. 1964. Literacy tests were also implemented to stop those who were uneducated from participating in the voting process. Literacy tests were administered in the discretion of those in charge of voter registration and often discriminated against African-American voters. Some literacy test questions found in a 1965 Alabama literacy test asked civic questions such as, in which document or writing is the Bill of Rights found? Or, name two of the purposes of the U.S. Constitution. Oh, shoot. So again, like, I mean, it's not how many bubbles are found in a bar of soap, but these are questions that are difficult. Yeah, they're still just as hard. I I think I would fail. And I feel like name two of the purposes of the U.S. Constitution is so open to interpretation that Mm -hmm. like anybody who is administering the test could be like, "Mm, no, I don't like those answers. So no, you're not going to be allowed to vote. African-Americans who took part in these tests were descendants of slaves who were not allowed to read or write in several states due to anti-literacy laws. The laws were passed in fear that black literacy would prove to be a threat to the slave system, which relied heavily on the dependence of slaves to their masters. Whites in many states had instituted laws forbidding slaves from learning to read or write and made it a crime for others to teach them. Alternatively, white men who could not pass the literacy test were able to vote due to the grandfather clause, allowing them to participate in voting if their grandfathers had voted by 1867. Oh, and- I didn't know that they could just vote because their grandfathers did. Even yeah, if they that's, couldn't pass yeah, so the literacy test. That's a whole, yeah. So that's the whole purpose of the grandfather clause was, so they started implementing these literacy tests and a lot of people, not just black people, mm-hmm weren't educated and had no idea and couldn't pass these tests. And so as a way to let some people, you know, kind of get by and loophole, they created the grandfather clause. So anyone whose grandfathers had voted by 1867 were automatically allowed to vote regardless of whether or not they passed the test. I roll. I know. In 1915, however, the grandfather clause was finally ruled unconstitutional. 
Before the Voting Rights Act of 1965, which we will get into shortly, the 19th Amendment was the first amendment that assured women in the United States the right to vote by stating, the right of the citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex. However, when ratified 100 years ago, the 19th Amendment did not guarantee black women the right to vote. According to National Geographic, in the fall of 1920, many black women showed up to the polls. In Kent County, Delaware, their numbers were unusually large, but officials turned away black women who failed to comply with the constitutional tests. Even though theoretically women, black women, for example, should have had the right to vote under the provision as a practical matter, but we know that that certainly was not the case and remains not a fully realized reality for many black women and women of color in this country. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was all immigrant women, too. Mm -hmm. Mexicans, Asians, they had an issue for a long time, too. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, the The Native Native Americans. Americans. Right. Furthermore, we have gerrymandering, which is very much tied into the story of voter suppression, though many people think of it as something different. Gerrymandering is the process of drawing political boundaries to favor one political party over others in an electoral system. In political systems where representatives are assigned based on geography, gerrymandering is an effective way to influence the outcome of elections. By drawing the boundaries so that an opponent has overwhelming control of a district, practitioners can create redundant or wasted votes. Alternatively, by drawing the boundaries so that they have a slim majority in a district they control, practitioners can ensure that fewer of their votes are wasted, allowing them to use those votes elsewhere. Essentially, gerrymandering either dilutes votes or it makes them hyper-concentrated so that they're diluted in other places. It's packing and cracking, and you can use mathematical solutions to look at a state and look at where people of color, especially black people, are. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. And both parties do this. This is not specific to, like, Republicans or Democrats, but I would say that overwhelmingly Republicans are more at fault Mm -hmm. for voter suppression especially in recent history yeah it's illegal though gerrymandering um so it wasn't illegal back then okay and we'll get into it in a little bit um it's been like hindered but it's something that still happens Mm -hmm. in fact prior to the civil rights era gerrymandering was an important tool in suppressing the political power of black americans While the 15th Amendment guaranteed all Americans the right to vote, there was no corresponding right to effective political representation. Many states in both the South and the North took steps to limit the electoral impact of black voters. After the Voting Rights Act, gerrymandering continued only slightly hindered. Both Democrats and Republicans typically used some form of gerrymandering to solidify their control whenever they win state elections. And the biggest effect is usually seen after control of a state legislature converts from one party to another. Okay. So definitely still happening. Mm-hmm. By the 1960s, however, more than a decade of protests, nonviolent resistance, and voter registration efforts that took place during the civil rights movement, there was a federal intervention. In 1964, the states ratified the 24th Amendment, which prohibited poll taxes. Then, in 1965, the Voting Rights Act barred the remainder of the voter suppression tactics that states had been using and established federal oversight over localities with histories of voter discrimination. After the passing of the Voting Rights Act of 1965, there were several changes within the United States government to get more people registered to vote. With the ratification of the 26th Amendment during the Vietnam War, the voting age was lowered from 21 to 18, which allowed more men and women across the country to register to vote. The National Voter Registration Act of 1993, more commonly known as the Motor Voter Act, was intended to offer more opportunities for voters to become registered by making the Department of Voter Vehicles, Public Assistance Facilities, and Disabilities Agencies places for people to register to vote. I voted or I registered to vote when I got my license. Yeah, same. Right. Mm-hmm. So like the this Motor Voter Act of 1993 made it so that you and I could register to vote. It made it so easy. It was just like a bubble check yeah. and then a signature. Yeah, and you're good to go. And that's all it is. However, the fight to get more people to vote and the progress after the Voting Rights Act came to a halt after the 2013 U.S. Supreme Court case Shelby County versus Holder changed the way the Voting Rights Act was implemented nationwide. In a 5-4 to four decision, Section 4 of the Voting Rights Act was ruled unconstitutional by the Supreme Court. 
the Supreme Court struck down a key provision of the act, which required states and localities with histories of voting discrimination to get federal approval before changing election laws. So this is huge, mm-hmm. like huge, huge, huge. And I had no idea that this was even I a didn't thing. Either. The court acted under the reasoning that the provision was no longer needed because racism was over. Oh, okay. (laughs) Or as Chief Justice John Roberts, who wrote for the majority, put it, our country has changed since 1965. He seemed oblivious to the fact that the change he noted had come about because of the act he was gutting. Uh, (laughs) I mean, like, hello. Oh my God. Our girl, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who was in the dissenting minority, devised an analogy of such power that anyone who heard it understood why it was so important to keep the act in place. She stated, throwing out preclearance when it has worked and is continuing to work to stop discriminatory changes is like throwing away your umbrella in a rainstorm because you are not getting wet. Yes, girl. And Ruth was right. There was no denying her logic because the ink was barely dry on this opinion when Southern states and others began to show what they thought of all this change. After this decision, Alabama implemented the Voter Identification Act. Texas put in place an even stricter Identification Act the same day the case was decided, and one that would impact predominantly poor and minority voters. North Carolina followed suit and also cut back on early voting, Mississippi rolled out its own identification act, and to make matters worse, the court gave permission to purge voter rolls in gerrymandered districts. Mm. In fact, the future Justice Ginsburg had hoped to evoke in her dissents, where protection for everyone's voting rights would be the law of the land, looked even more distant as House Republicans presented nearly unanimous opposition to H.R. 4 a new voting rights act that would establish new criteria for determining which states and political subdivisions must obtain preclearance before changes to voting practices may take place. Which seems great, right? The bill passed the House in 2009, but the Senate refused to hold a floor vote on the bill. Oh, no. The Voting Rights Act was originally passed for only five years, But it was renewed with strong bipartisan majorities, including during Republican administrations in 1970 with Nixon, 1975 with Ford, 1982 with Reagan, and in 2006 with Bush. On each occasion, Congress recognized that while selecting a candidate to vote for is a political choice, the act of voting itself is fundamentally American, a quintessential right that must be protected for all citizens. Chief Justice Roberts' assessment in 2013 that the days of discrimination in voting were behind us has been conclusively disproven by these subsequent events, but his words are still the law of the land, and we face serious challenges in voting, ranging from foreign interference to suppression to gerrymandering to delayed results due to mail-in voting because of the pandemic. So what does voter suppression look like today? Over the last decade, thanks in large part to the Supreme Court case of 2013 that we just discussed, states have enacted voter restrictions that disproportionately affect racial minorities and distort our democracy. This system faces new challenges in today's elections, which in some ways have returned to an era that makes it harder for citizens to participate. All of the core elements of our election machinery are left up to the states to decide which should sound familiar. Mm -hmm. The impact of these laws often intersects with race and income, as did the harshest voter suppression laws of America's past. So I'm going to dive into the voter suppression that we're seeing in today's day and age. Mm -hmm. But it's going to sound very, very similar to all of the things that we already discussed. It's just we're seeing it in different like forms because yeah. we're in a different time, but right. they're basically all the same tactics that were used um, to suppress black votes in um, our early history. It's just modernized now. Just a little bit modernized. Yeah. Voter registration restrictions are a common form of voter suppression today. Restrictions can include requiring documents to prove citizenship or identification, heavy penalties for voter registration drives, or limiting the window of time in which voters can register. Politicians often use unfounded claims of voter fraud to try to justify registration restrictions. In 2011, Kansas Secretary of State Chris Kobach championed a law requiring Kansans to show proof of citizenship documents in order to register to vote, citing false claims of non-citizen voting. 
most people don't carry the required documents on hand, anything like a passport or a birth certificate, which like, again, I don't take that to my polling place. I take no. my ID, my yeah. driver's license, you know, if mm-hmm. that, but I'm not carrying a passport or a birth certificate. And as a result, the law blocked over 30,000 Kansans from voting. Whoa. Thankfully, the ACLU sued and defeated the law in 2018. I love ACLU. I mean, yeah. Who doesn't? They're champions for (laughs) equality. Um, Some state restrict registration by allowing people to register long in advance of an election. For example, New York requires voters to register at least 25 days before the election, which imposes an unnecessary burden on the right to vote. By forcing voters to register before the election, it discourages people from registering in the first place. These outdated restrictions, which were designed for a time when registration forms were exclusively completed with pen and paper and transmitted via snail mail, can significantly impact voter participation. In the 2016 presidential election, over 90,000 New Yorkers were unable to vote because their application did not meet the 25-day cutoff, and the state had the eighth worst turnout rate in the country. Oh, no. Which this is kind of crazy because I've, so I've been registered to vote since I got my ID when I was like 17 or 18. Yeah. But I've since moved and I kind of always use my mom's address as permanent address Mm -hmm. because, you know, like we were renting an apartment. And in college we moved around. Yeah, I moved around. So it didn't make sense for me to like be updating it when my mom was always at her address and I can always get my mail there. But since we just bought this house and I know I'm going to be here for the long term. I just remembered, I was like, oh, I can just re-register to vote like here in in Mm -hmm. my actual address. And so I just did that maybe a week ago. And so at that point, like I probably would have been outside of the allotted window of time to do it. So it's stuff like that where I'm like, you could have missed out. I probably could have missed out. Yeah. And, you know, little would I have known. I could have just left it at my mom's address and just voted the polling place there. Yeah. But I wanted to kind of update everything and who knows what could have happened also it affects people who move out of state within that range i don't know how it would work necessarily if you so like my husband's in the military and his home state is texas so when he votes it's technically a texas vote Um, still today still today Oh, I mean, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, especially in the military, they can move state. He's been in multiple states yeah, already. And we'll get into the different ballots, but there are ballots that you can use for people who, like your like like Gabe, who moves around a lot, or people right. who have recently moved. There are certain ballots, but we'll get into how it, they're difficult to use. Yes, because there's are. a lot of like, okay, like you have to go and turn this in, and then a couple days later, you have to go and show your ID. We're going to get into all right. of that, but yeah. I can see, I mean, that's, our, I've already seen that as a hindrance for him specifically, but what I'm saying is when there's um, a cutoff date to mm, be registered to yeah. vote, but you move states, I feel like that would also be an issue if you're, you know, within that time frame. Yeah. Um, voter ID laws are another form of voter suppression we see today. An example would be Alabama again, whose legislature passed its voter ID law before the Shelby County ruling in 2011, but waited until the post-Shelby voting environment, 24 hours after the Supreme Court decision to be exact, to implement the rule, which requires an ID to cast a ballot and was followed by DMV offices where IDs can be obtained, closing or reducing hours across the state disproportionately in places with high Black populations. Alabama's voter ID law, like many others across the country, was cleverly crafted. Technically, voter IDs are free for all who don't have access to an ID in Alabama, but you must have the right supporting documents, a birth certificate, which some voters may not have because they live in a rural area and weren't born in a hospital, Mm. or they weren't allowed to be born in a segregated hospital, which blows my mind to think of because we live in San Diego and it's a city and pretty Mm -hmm. much everyone like goes to a hospital or whatever. But like, I I have never thought about the fact that like, if you live in a rural area, you're not driving hours to go to a hospital and therefore you're not you don't have a birth certificate like you can still get one but i think you have to go into like the county administration building or it's whatever a process to get one and most people are like well, i don't care like i live on my farm like i don't need this paper but yeah <laughs> you do kind of with me specifically actually um i never had 
an actual birth certificate, like an official one. I don't know why. I don't know if my mom lost it, but we had like a copy one. So it wasn't like the full page. Mm -hmm. It was like this half page thing and it wasn't considered official. So I mean, my schools accepted it when I was enrolled in schools, but when I went to apply for my passport, it it didn't count. Mm -mm. And I wasn't born in San Diego. So I had to go to that county physically. Yeah, I drove there. It was like five hours to drive there. Um, I drove there and then I had to apply in person. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I, and it wasn't right away. Like I still had to get it mailed to me. And mm-hmm. I was like, oh my God, I need to like apply for my passport. Yeah. Like it was, I was so stressed out that if I just needed that just to vote, yeah. even though I'm like for voting, I don't, and especially at that age, I don't think I would yeah. have gone through that process. I mean, I'm 30 something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And recently married, and I have not updated my last name because it is, there's just too much work. Yeah, I mean, especially right now during the pandemic, like everything is just kind of a little wonky. But I have the form, the application, it's filled out, and it's just on my refrigerator Mm -hmm. because it's just... I don't want to have to go to the building. So I can can totally see why... How that's a suppression. This is just, yeah, another form. So with this specifically, you would also have to make time to visit your local DMV office, which may now have reduced hours, or find the one ID truck that is responsible for helping give out free IDs for the entire state. Mm -hmm. And it's often just parked in Birmingham. So unless you can find your way out to Birmingham or get to the DMV, it's, it's almost, it's not impossible. It's just really, really hard. And it shouldn't be this hard for someone to vote. Yeah. Voter ID laws don't just create obstacles for voting in Alabama. They also create confusion. In South Carolina, a photo ID is required unless you are willing to sign an affidavit that you have an obstacle to getting an ID. These voters get an impediment ballot. They are also supposed to sign an affidavit stating their impediment on election day and must hope that one of the poll workers is also a notary. Because without a notary, the proclamation is technically not an affidavit. Wow. So you're kind of just taking a chance that mm-hmm. ho- hoping one of the poll workers is, happens to be a notary. a notary. Oh, man. That's and a lot of obstacles. It's so many. There is yet another ballot, a provisional ballot for people who do have an ID, but either lost it or forgot to bring it to their polling station. For these voters, two days after a primary or three days after a general election, there are hearings where everyone who filled out a provisional ballot must show up to court and present their ID to a judge to have their ballot counted. Hmm. Many don't know about these court dates, and even if they did, taking time off to prove their identity days after taking time off to vote is a burden, especially for low-income people who only get guaranteed time off for voting and not the aftermath. And as I was reading this and as I was researching this, I like feel like at one point I had to fill out a provisional ballot because I either lost the one that came in the mail or I didn't have my ID on me at the time. And they're mm-hmm. like, here's this provisional ballot. But no one ever told me like, hey, you're going to have to go to a hearing before a judge to prove that you're you. Like no one informed me right, of any of that. And so I'm like hoping that that wasn't the case. And I'm just like misremembering. But like, I want to say that at some point in my voting life, mm-hmm. someone handed me a provisional ballot for one reason or another. And I filled it out, turned it in, walked away with my I voted sticker yeah. thinking I actually voted. And like now that I'm going through all of this, I'm like, did I actually even vote? Oh, man, in that election? that's wild. And I can't I can't remember. And again, like I could just be misremembering. But though everything about it just sounds so familiar. Mm-hmm. So who knows? I need to make sure that I never get a provisional ballot because I don't want to go before a judge. And it, does it vary by state? No, I think this is just overall. A, a t- yeah. A wow. type of ballot. Okay. Yeah. Um, In Texas, the voter ID law also causes confusion and controversy. Many types of ID are accepted from a driver's license to a gun license, but student IDs are not acceptable. When these laws are passed that introduce additional barriers to voting, it's no secret that these laws are attempting to disenfranchise. Voter ID laws at the polls are complemented by witness laws regarding absentee ballots. Some states require citizens to show ID even when voting by mail. In Wisconsin, voters had to send a digital copy of their IDs to receive an absentee ballot in the mail, which could have been a challenge for anyone without a scanner at home during the state at 
the state's coronavirus shelter in place order, but not just during coronavirus. If you have voters who are in the older demographics Mm -hmm. who don't know how to use a scanner, who don't know how to use the internet or email or anything like that. I see Mm -hmm. this so much at work when patients are trying to get their test results. Um, They can fill out this like authorization form saying, but they're them and they Mm -hmm. have to prove that they're them by providing like a copy of their driver's license, for example, or their ID. And a lot of times the older patients have no idea. Some don't have computers. If they Mm -hmm. do have computers, they have no idea how to download a form, how to print it, how to fill it out, scan it, email it back. Like I just got a scanner like a month ago. I mean, there's apps on your phone. I know that now. Exactly. I didn't even learn that till after. Exactly. Like if you and I, people our age, sometimes have difficulties with this like imagine someone who's 50 60 Mm -hmm. 70 like you know my mom's I say lucky but not lucky but she has my sister and I who are still with the times and can like help her but if she was on her own I have no idea how she would figure out how to do something like this or if they didn't have internet and they had to go to like a FedEx Uh, uh or Kinko's or something just to print out and fill out and scan and send Mm -hmm. that's a lot of work it's a lot of work Some counties in Arizona have a similar requirement facilitated through an online portal. And in Arkansas, absentee ballots have to be returned with a copy of the voter's ID. Eleven states require voters who return mail-in ballots to follow a signature checklist before their votes are counted in the election. The ballots need the voter's signature, a witness's signature, and the witness's home address. And it's logical to try to increase security on a ballot sent in the mail because there's increased risk with the ballot out of the voter and the election officials site. But these laws can, in effect, do more harm than good. It's a fact of American democracy that some states have higher hurdles to jump than others before arriving at the ballot box. But these laws are set in place and implemented over time. Other changes can happen with one election's official's decision before election day or even during in-person voting, and these changes are not always effectively communicated to voters. For instance, another example of voter suppression we've seen in recent years, including this one, has been the consolidation of polling places. Sometimes polling places are consolidated, moved, or completely closed down. And this could be for many valid and legal reasons, but when the new information doesn't make him from an elections official's office to a voter, it can be equally disenfranchising as a legal obstacle. Often the burden of sharing this information falls on national nonprofit organizations like the ACLU and the Legal Defense and Educational Fund or local grassroots groups. These groups track changes to polling places and disseminate the information to their networks to help voters get to the polls. Sometimes this means sharing information online or leaving a volunteer outside of a closed-down polling station to direct voters to the new location in the absence of government poll workers. Mm -hmm. So all of this information that's so crucial and so critical at a time of voting, none of it's really getting from the elected officials' offices Mm -hmm. to the people. And so it ends up being on the nonprofit organizations to end up having to take care of this. But this makes no sense because what would happen if there was no nonprofit? Yeah, the burden shouldn't be on them. No. Election administrators and elected officials have often forfeited a lot of the work of communicating changes in the law or other things to nonprofits and advocates that don't have the resources and really shouldn't have the obligation to let folks know about the fundamental right to vote. So often, there just isn't information updated on the state election websites, and if it's not there, then where is it supposed to be? Who has the responsibility to make sure that voters, in the easiest, clearest way uh, to articulate, know where they're supposed to go on election day? It's confusing, and the ball is often dropped there, because even if you make great accommodations, what what does it matter if voters can't utilize them and exercise their right to vote? States across the American South have closed nearly 1,200 polling places Mm. since the Supreme Court ruling in 2013. The closures come amid a tightening of voter ID laws in many states, which, as we know, make it harder for blacks and minorities to vote. Polling places have often been used as political tools to shape the outcome of elections. Officials can reduce the voter participation of certain groups by simply eliminating polling places and increase participation in other groups by placing precincts in key neighborhoods. But it's not just the number of polling places that affect voter outcomes. Moving voters to different voting environments may also affect how they vote. 
The number of polling places in a county can have a significant impact on who votes, but changing the location of a polling place can further lower voter turnout. Fewer polling places can also lead to longer lines, which may dissuade people from voting. Knowing this, officials can change the outcome of an election by manipulating polling places. So you can basically lessen the turnout of people who disagree with your position by doing this. Officials in Florida might have used this tactic recently to target college students. A federal judge ruled in July that election officials at the direction of Republican Florida Governor Rick Scott revealed a stark pattern of discrimination by blocking early voting at the state's college and university campuses. Many young people have registered to vote in the aftermath of the school mass shooting in Parkland, Florida, where student survivors have led registration drives throughout the state. Patricia Brigham, President of the League of Women Voters of Florida said state officials were trying to block these first-time voters from getting access to the ballot. There are other efforts underway in counties in Illinois, Kansas, Mississippi, Ohio, and Wisconsin to move thousands of voters to a new location. And the primary driver for closing some of these polling places is a tight local budget, mm-hmm. quote unquote. For example, some voters in Barton County, Kansas, will now have to drive 18 miles to vote in November's election because of polling place consolidation. In the past three decades, the county has gone from 40 polling places to 11, and the main reason, said County Clerk Donna Zimmerman, is cost. But can you imagine having to drive 18 miles? When I was living at my mom's house, it was literally up the street. Like So polling places here have also been cut our polling place used to be down the street like you could have walked to it Mm -hmm. um that's where it used to be and now we have to go to the high school that's farther but i mean luckily it it won't affect us greatly but yeah it you know we've already seen it here that mm -hmm. we already have to drive farther than what we would have normally when local officials attempt to close polling places in majority black neighborhoods as they tried in Randolph County, Georgia, they forced black voters to travel farther to vote and to vote in an environment they might find threatening, like in a majority white neighborhood. Polling closings often target so-called super voters who consistently vote and depend on routine and comfort in the voting process. Mm. Polling place environments also can have a large impact on how people vote. Sometimes the influence can be overt, such as when a location is a church or a school, but often the influence is subtle. Changing a polling location to an unfamiliar environment can be an effective tool of voter manipulation. Purging voters is another way in which some states try to tailor the electorate to achieve their preferred political outcomes. State election officials do, of course, have the obligation to try to keep the voter registration records up to date by canceling registrations of people who have died, are imprisoned, have moved to another state, or become legally incompetent. But a minority of states go a little further and engage in a practice that ought to be seen as glaringly unconstitutional. They're purging people from the rolls solely because they have skipped voting in several consecutive elections and they have not responded to a letter asking them to confirm where they live. Really? Yes. Like, this is crazy. Do you know what states are doing that? Yeah, so I'll get into it okay. in a little bit. Um, but Georgia is a huge one, wow. and uh, and I'll talk about it in a bit. This practice results in the deletion of hundreds of thousands of registrants each year. Very often, those people get energized to vote in a given election, but find when they show up at the polls that they are no longer registered and cannot cast a ballot. Oh, no. This practice cannot be justified on the theory that voting rights are a use-it-or-lose-it proposition. It is well established under the Constitution and federal law that American voters have a right to choose not to vote and not to be penalized for doing so. Instead, the nine or so states that engage in this type of purge of registrants say it's justified because not voting in recent elections and not returning a mailed notice is a proxy for identifying people who have moved to a different jurisdiction. But like, no, Mm -hmm. that's not true. Mm -mm. Um, I can't remember if I put it in here, but um, there was one state who would send in like, you know, how we get the uh, the envelope with all of your voting materials or whatever Mm -hmm. so in that envelope i think they would send a postcard that said like fill this out and send it back to make sure you're still like here basically no in in one of these states not us and so most of the time people get a lot of like 
materials for when you're voting or yeah. like when voting time is around. And a lot of people will just kind of throw things out that they don't find necessary or right. find useful. And so a lot of people just saw this postcard, threw it out without realizing mm-hmm. like that this they was something that they had to submit to, to be to continue to be registered to oh, vote. Man. Um, another one that talked about how when you would mail in your ballot, some states were really strict about how you could only have the ballot in the envelope, but that envelope that they send you oftentimes again had other materials in it, including the I voted sticker. Yeah. And so even if, even that little tiny I voter sticker, if that happened to be in the envelope when you sent it, uh-huh. your ballot was no longer valid. Oh my god! So they wouldn't count it. It's there's there's so much you can't expect someone to be that um diligent so my husband is notorious for throwing away everything that's the person i want to be oh my gosh he has no problem throwing away everything i mean there's times where i'm like we could use that one day and he's like nah i'm just gonna throw it away and then like a week later i'm like I need that thing. (laughs) But for male specifically, he's just throwing Throwing. away everything. So like I could already see like if we had received one of those that it would just end up in the trash. Yeah. And not because we don't care to vote because I absolutely do, obviously. Mm -hmm. Um, I just feel like if all of the everything that you've been mentioning, if that applied here, I would have failed so many times. Exactly. And we like to think that we're somewhat like on top of things yeah (laughs) and clearly you know based on a lot of the different laws in different states we just would have been long Mm. gone uh the problem is that this proxy is both highly imperfect and entirely unnecessary as a mechanism for keeping voting rolls up to date most of the states have found that they can do that job just fine by relying on indicators like the National Change of Address System maintained by the U.S. Postal Service and in recent years, data generated by the Electric Registration Information Center, also known as ERIC. The latter is a cooperative program with 30 states now joined as members that identifies out-of-date voter records by comparing the voting rolls of the member states to each other and to each state's motor vehicle records. So again, like that seems way easier and way more accurate than someone not sending in this freaking postcard. Yeah. Using the system, many states can identify registrants who moved away and got a driver's license and are registered to vote in their new location. Mm Mm-hmm. Given these methods of cleansing the voting rolls, there simply is no justification for also using voter inactivity as an independent basis for eliminating registrations. But some states like Ohio and Georgia persist in canceling registrations of voters simply because they have not voted recently and fail to return a mailed vote notice. There is every reason to be concerned that this practice continues because it has a political skewing effect. Failure to vote regularly correlates with lower socioeconomic status, and at least in some places, with being a member of a racial minority. Unfortunately, the courts have so far not provided the remedy that is needed. And to see this play out in recent history, I mean like super recent history, you can watch All In, The Fight for Democracy on Amazon Prime. The documentary revolves around Stacey Abrams' gubernatorial race in Georgia and the many ways in which her opponent used this tactic to suppress votes. Two years ago, during the 2018 midterms, the Democratic candidate for governor of Georgia pressed to register and rally voters amid disturbing revelations about the fairness of the election. Two weeks before Election Day, an investigation found that the state of Georgia had improperly purged 340,000 people from voter registration rolls without notice. The man in charge of running a fair election, Secretary of State Brian Kemp, had previously blocked 53,000 people, 80% of them black, from registering to vote due to minor discrepancies in their state records. Kemp, a Republican and outspoken Trump loyalist, was also running against Abrams, who would have become the nation's first black female governor had she not lost by a razor-thin margin of about 55,000 votes. Uh. And you said that they had purged 300,000? 340,000. Oh, no. And I'm sure, I don't I'm, I don't know if they could tell, but majority would have been in her favor. Most, uh, most likely. So, mm-hmm. and I think we'll get into it a little bit later, but especially with like the fel- felony disenfranchisement. Yeah. Um, one of the main reasons why they want to keep felons from voting is because they fear that a vast majority of them would lean Democratic. Which oh, would interesting. Republican parties because of reform. Mm-hmm. Okay. 
Of all the challenges and barriers to voting out there, one that doesn't get enough attention is felony disenfranchisement and the often relentless process of rights restoration. Across the country, states follow a patchwork of laws and constitutional provisions denying the right to vote to persons with prior felony convictions and provide deferring and, in many cases, extremely difficult processes for winning back the franchise. Too many Americans, over 6 million, are excluded from our democratic process on the basis of criminal disenfranchisement laws. 6 million? 6 million. I knew it was an issue. I didn't know it was that That much of an issue. It's huge. These laws are rooted in a racist legal tradition dating to the period after the Civil War and continue to disproportionately affect communities of color. Indeed, one in every 13 voting age African Americans has lost the right to vote, four times the rate of all other Americans. In Tennessee, for example, one in every five African Americans is denied the right to vote by felony disenfranchisement laws. And these laws continue to disenfranchise people long after they've paid for their debt to society. Of the 6 million citizens unable to vote because of past criminal convictions, as many as 4.7 million are currently out of prison. Stuff, this out is of prison. insane. Yeah. Though, though. <laughs> Sandy is rubbing her eyes in a way I've never seen before. <laughs> I have no idea what's going on. <laughs> I feel like my head is about to explode right now. Um, those statistics of the, what is it, 1 in 13? Yeah. African Americans mm-hmm. able to vote can't because of this. I don't understand. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I can't speak. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, ob- and and obviously, <sighs> as we know, like minorities, black people, black men are disproportionately affected by arrests, incarceration, and incarceration. Yeah. and so this is clearly tied to so many other things. It's not just like oh, they, okay, like there there's a higher rate of black men who are incarcerated. It, it goes beyond that even mm-hmm. after they've come mm-hmm. out of incarceration if they happen to like we're now seeing this other way that their whole Being lives are disproportionately affected. how would we even change that how do you go oh i guess we're just reforming the whole thing yeah okay and we're, we're gonna get into a little bit so i am sorry i just never no, understood how prevalent it was mm-hmm. that and then what was it one in five in tennessee yeah, so in Tennessee, one in every five African Americans is denied the right to vote by felony disenfranchisement laws. Oh my laws. gosh, mm-hmm. this is insane. It's All insane. Right. These laws vary widely among states. On one end, Kentucky, Florida, and Iowa impose lifetime disenfranchisement for all people with felony convictions unless an individual pardon is granted, which we know how hard that pardon like are. never happens. Yeah. On the other end, Vermont and Maine have no laws disenfranchising those with criminal convictions. The vast majority of states fall in between. So there's a couple things that they can fall in between. Okay. The first is permanently disenfranchising at least some people with convictions depending on the crime. The second would be restoring voting rights upon completions of one's sentence, including prison, parole, and probation. The third would be restoring voting rights automatically after release from prison and discharge from parole. Mm Mm-hmm. And the last one would be restoring voting rights automatically after release from prison. Mm -hmm. So just those are kind of like where they all fall between. These laws are racist and undermine our democracy, making our government less accountable to the people it serves. Supporters of loosening the restrictions further argue that voting should be a universal right one that's not affected by even a felony record. They point out that these laws have a racially disproportionate impact, particularly on black people due to the systemic racism that runs through the criminal justice system. And in some cases, they note, they may be intentional. Some of these disenfranchisement laws have roots in the Jim Crow era in which lawmakers around the country replaced the system of slavery with another system of legal oppression. As Florida's experience shows, there's still resistance to allowing everyone to vote. Some of that is strictly political. Republicans in particular worry that allowing ex-felons to vote could boost turnout for Democrats. Others simply object to the idea of letting people vote while they're in prison or due to their felony records, seeing their loss of the right to vote as part of their punishment for their crimes. I, I would get that if you're just like, okay, while they're in prison, they're serving their punishment, they don't get to vote, whatever. But once they've served their sentence, like they're done, mm-hmm. they're supposed to be rehabilitated or whatever the case is and go free. I can understand for people that committed a hate crime, like why we wouldn't want them to vote 
after they get out, right? Yeah, I mean, like, I don't know. Like, to me, that it's hard because regardless of how awful the crime is, I don't feel like there should be a correlation between like constitutional rights mm-hmm. to something mm-hmm. that don't state like oh it's a constitutional right unless you've done this this and this like yeah. it's your constitutional right like you should be and there's so many other things that are already imposed on criminals felons whatever it is that mm-hmm. they're having to deal with that i feel like at, like where does it end where do you draw the line between like okay like you've got all of these other things you have to deal with on mm-hmm. top of suddenly you're now just like not a, like you, they're you still a citizen you can't t- revoke those rights from them you just can't participate in the democracy that is yeah really essentially gonna govern your life for the rest of your life a lot of those ballots have props and yeah. whoever the president is is gonna affect what so, happens to them moving forward mm-hmm. and and i can only think of like people that are wrongfully convicted that then can't get to vote. Right. And then people, especially people that did like nonviolent offenses, mm-hmm. like maybe they did drugs and now they can't vote for the rest uh, of their lives. Of I don't understand that. Go into prison at such a young age, mm-hmm. you know, that like they just didn't never got to vote. Um, one of the things I read um, was that Bernie, um, that was actually one of the things that he like based his campaign on for mm. this this election was um so his state of vermont i think is one of the only states that allows prisoners to vote from prison oh interesting um, but that also was like a, a negative for him with the rest of the democratic party who didn't necessarily agree uh-huh. so like while he's fighting for felon disenfranchisement yeah. like getting rid of it like there's a lot of people still who are just kind of like oh like we don't know like yeah it, it can go either way but i you know i stand with bernie <laughs> um a lot is potentially at stake more than six million americans in 2016 were prohibited from voting due to a felony conviction according to the sentencing project that included more than 20 percent of all potential black voters in florida kentucky tennessee and virginia at the time Can you imagine 20% of all potential black voters, not just potential black voters in prison Mm -hmm. or out of prison, like 20% of all potential black voters in the U.S. would not be able to vote because of this. It's nuts. Um, Preventing people with criminal records from voting in the U.S. goes back to the colonial era and the the concept of civil death. The notion that some bad actions effectively left a person dead in terms of civic engagement. But there's also a uniquely American racist twist to the story rooted in Jim Crow. Felony disenfranchisement laws were part of the push after the Civil War, particularly in the South, to limit civil rights gains following the end of slavery and the ratification of the 13th, 14th, and 15th constitutional amendments protecting minority rights. That makes sense now. Mm -hmm. So I didn't want to put this part earlier in everything because I wanted to kind of dive into it a little bit deeper, but this does go way back. And this was a form of voter suppression when at the like inception of our country. Right. So then that would apply to like all the civil rights activists. Right. Also. Yes. Mm. Mm -hmm. Now I'm mad. The resistance also included the Jim Crow laws that legally enforced racial segregation as well as other limits on black voting power. Undoing all of this has been a decades-long project for civil rights activists. And one such person fighting to undo all of this is Bruce Riley. He is the deputy director of a New Orleans organization called Vote, which advocates for the formerly incarcerated. Riley was a sounding board for the leader of the recent Florida ballot campaign that restored voting rights to up to 1.4 million former felons and helped lead similar initiatives in Rhode Island and Louisiana. But what many don't know when they first meet Bruce is that in 1992, he murdered a college professor by the name of Charles Russell, who had picked him up as he was hitchhiking on an interstate. The two hung out at Russell's home where they smoked weed and talked about books for hours. And about a week later, Riley returned to Russell's home. The two smoked weed again and talked. But as Russell performed oral sex on Riley, he became enraged. He picked up a knife and began stabbing at Russell's neck. And a year later, Riley was arrested. He confessed that he had snapped during the sexual encounter and that the fight had escalated. Facing life in prison, he accepted a deal to plead, plead guilty 
to a second-degree murder charge and was sentenced to 20 years in prison, followed by 25 years probation. So he spent hundreds of hours studying case law in the prison library and wrote dozens of petitions, briefs, and motions, and helped at least two fellow prisoners reduce their sentences by several years. Riley was paroled in 2005 and enrolled at Rhode Island College, worked a low-wage job, and became active in local civil rights groups that now is known as Open Doors. The organization was campaigning for a ballot initiative to restore the voting rights of felons after their release, and Riley eventually worked as the strategist and volunteer coordinator for the effort, which passed. To help continue his work on behalf of the formerly incarcerated, Riley applied to law school. Although he scored in the top 7% of the standardized entrance exam, he didn't have a bachelor's degree, and only one of more than two dozen schools accepted him. So in the fall of 2011, Riley arrived on the campus of Tulane University. There's so much more that goes into like his personal life and what mm-hmm. it was like going to college at the time because he obviously wasn't like announcing to everyone, hey, by the way, like <laughs> I murdered someone. Right. But it did get out. And so it, it he like kind of talks about what that was like. Oof. But he graduated and through vote, the organization that he's with now in New Orleans, he continues to fight to end felony disenfranchisement, as well as mass incarceration, equality and opportunity for all people, racial profiling inside prison and in our communities, among many other things. And to learn more about Riley and the work that he's doing through Vote, you can visit vote-nola.org. I love New Orleans. (laughs) I'll probably cut that out. New Orleans and the story. Like, this is just such an incredible story of someone who has been there, done that, and is now having to fight for mm-hmm. their own rights, but also sees the benefit of fighting for all of these other people. So it's great work that he's doing. Obviously, it's like a crazy story, but I thought it was really interesting. Yeah, it um, is. To kind of just point out. And so now that we discuss the many ways in which voter suppression works, what can we do to fight against it? Voter suppression, coupled with the coronavirus pandemic, has already prevented thousands of people from participating in safe and fair elections. By keeping people of color from voting, officials are preventing necessary large-scale change from happening as racism continues to plague America. Police violence, health care inequality, affordable housing, and the school-to-prison pipeline are all issues that start at the local level and can be influenced by voting. So it's no wonder that certain politicians have a vested interest in suppressing our vote. The situation is dire and we need large-scale systemic overhaul to, in order to continue as a democracy. The Democratic majority U.S. House has passed several measures, including 2019's H.R. 1, or the For the People Act, which expands voting rights, limits partisan gerrymandering, and strengthens ethical rules. But... It's being held up in the U.S. Senate, specifically by right-wing majority leader Senator Mitch McConnell, which means it cannot go into effect. So in the meantime, Mm -hmm. we can get educated and read up on the things that we need to know um, before voting. Um, Again, visit the website Vote411, which provides personalized ballots based on your address and political party. You can make a plan to determine how you will vote. Will you be voting in person or by mail? You can be prepared by calling polling locations ahead of time and making sure that all of your questions are answered prior to the big day. Um, This one should go without saying, but of course you should vote. (laughs) Vote even if you (laughs) think your voice doesn't matter. This country has a history of making it seem like people are too insignificant to make a difference. So to sit out in this moment when pretty much everything is at stake will be the greatest form of voter suppression. Um, And lastly, volunteer to help save voting rights. The fight does not end on November 3rd. Like I said, you know, there's so many things that go into the next the next election, um, especially at local levels. Um, So here are some organizations that need our help year round. And if you're able to do so, please consider volunteering or donating to the following. So the first one is the League of Women's Voters, established in 1920. It's a nonpartisan activist group that fights for voting rights across the country. They support expanding voter access, fighting for voter suppression, and other issues like redistricting and money in politics. If you want to assist them, you can contact your senator or representative and urge them to support the issues they fight for, like automatic voter registration and expanding early voting, or you can also donate to their cause. Um, The American Civil Liberties Union, a.k.a. the ACLU, among its many causes and issues they back, 
engages in legal cases and activism against voter suppression, including specifically suppression of Native American voters. To take action with the ACLU, you can send messages to your state officials about important issues or just donate. Election Protection is a national nonpartisan group that gives information and helps at all stages of voting, from registering to casting a vote. They run a hotline for anyone who has issues at the polls during an election. If you'd like to help, you can sign up to provide legal assistance or poll monitoring or make a donation through the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights under law. I have a couple more. I'm sorry, (laughs) but there's just so many. Um, The Fair Fight is a national voter rights organization founded by Stacey Abrams, the former Georgia Democratic gubernatorial candidate. For 2020, Fair Fight is working to build voter protection teams. If you'd like to support Fair Fight's work, you can donate or sign up to get involved in the protection of their efforts. Spread the Vote is an organization dedicated to helping people get IDs ahead of Election Day. IDs are necessary to participate in lots of areas of society, such as getting employment, opening a bank account, or finding housing. And additionally, voter ID laws in particular disproportionately affect communities of color, the elderly, and new voters, as we've seen. Mm -hmm. So Spread the Vote helps people to navigate their state ID laws and assist with everything from application fees to driving you to the DMV to get your ID. You can join a local chapter or you can start one. And you can donate at their website, spreadthevote.org. That's pretty cool. Yeah, that's really cool, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've got two more. (laughs) Asian Americans Advancing Justice slash Asian Law Caucus, which works to knock down language barriers for voters across the country. They provide a voter hotline with assistance in nine Asian languages, as well as an election resources for people to check their voter registration, understand their ballot, and know their voting rights ahead of time. You can get involved by applying for an internship or donating at their website, advancingjustice-aajc.org. And lastly, Brennan Center for Justice. The Brennan Center is a leader in civil rights research and litigation. Their work to protect the integrity of voting rights in elections is incredibly thorough. So if you need a good place to start educating yourself on voter suppression, they have many, many resources. You can become a monthly donor, give in someone else's name, or sign up for their monthly newsletter to stay informed about their work. There's plenty we can do. Mm -hmm. Of course, voting is the first one, but also just doing research. Like you don't have to sit all day and just like research about voting um, and have it like consume your life, but like a little bit at a time. I mean, um, influencers have done a really good job, I think, on Instagram of using their platforms Mm -hmm. and sharing links that help and so whenever i'm scrolling and i don't i'm pretty bad about scrolling i just like tap 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 but i've tried to be more like conscious about when i see something that happens to be about voting or whatever um clicking on it and just reading on it and even if i don't spend a lot of time reading it even just a little bit information a day can help Mm -hmm. so November 3rd, turn out. November 3rd, show up. Voted early. Yeah. Um, So, my Amplify Corner, really quickly this week, is Resistance by Design. It's the company that Sandy and I bought our hats from and I bought a mask from. They are a group of women, mothers, artists, fashion designers, and tech entrepreneurs who are passionate about advocating for women's rights, human rights, LBGTQ rights, Black lives immigrants, science, and so many other issues that are currently under political attack. I should say LGBTQ+. They didn't have the plus on their website. And we know women are the way to turn the tide. We've They've made signs, they've worn t-shirts, they've marched, protested, chanted, voted, something, you know, pretty much any woman in 2020 who's around our age have probably done. Mm-hmm. Um, and they will continue doing those things. They also wanted to wear their values at work on campus and around town. So resistance by design inspired civic engagement through the intersection of art and fashion. Resistance by design creates thoughtful designs that empower everyday activists and amplify social justice movements. They believe in amplifying voices that have been historically underrepresented and yet responsible for so many of our country's greatest movements. Many of their offerings tell stories of world-changing women, and because they are passionate about fostering the leaders for the future, Resistance by Design supports organizations such as She Should Run, Vote Run Lead, and the Women's March, amongst many others. 
you can visit their website at resistancebydesign.com. And if you're interested in buying anything from them, all of their stuff is really, really cute. Mm -hmm. And you can feel good about just knowing that your purchase is going to be helping one of these organizations that's doing so much good for not just like these times of voting, but Mm -hmm. just beyond that. Yeah, I'm really so weeks ago, Steph found this website and sent it to me and it's like oh my god how cute so we both immediately bought mm-hmm. hats that day and it says vote on it yeah um and it's really nice so we will be wearing them every day yeah <laughs> um and when we turn out to go vote together we will be mm-hmm. wearing it so we'll definitely post them um it's really good quality and that's pretty much all i have again this is not a comprehensive look although it is a really long episode and we did discuss a lot. There's just so much more that we can learn and Mm -hmm. discuss, but this is kind of just like a good place to start for those of us who might not have known as much about voter suppression um, or thought that this was just something that existed before our times. This is something that is still happening. Yeah. Um, You know, like Sandy mentioned earlier, um, polling places around our community Mm -hmm. have you know have closed so this is something that's still going on and affecting pretty much probably anyone who's listening today yeah and I mean I thought I did a lot of research for my episode but I learned stuff today on your episode (laughs) that I didn't come across in my research so I think this is always gonna be a learning thing um voting like you said voting is huge but also not just presidential elections but all your local elections mm-hmm. are just as important i would say more important mm-hmm. than presidential elections because they, they will affect dictate you the books that are in your children's schools who is running those schools um but once you become informed on mm-hmm. the issues that are happening in your community you do have the power to vote that out vote, vote other out. things in vote the correct um, people in yeah everything it comes down to water gas and electric yeah. are also issues that have my bill is way too high for (laughs) that too i guess um but any any elected official has an effect on you Mm -hmm. so all your local elections are extremely important so keep up to date on those two and participate in that just as hard as you would participate in the presidential election Mm -hmm. let's do it guys let's do it i hope that wasn't too much that was a two-parter that was so a two-parter. If this you're was new, interesting. This was yeah. Fun. If you're a new listener and this is your first episode, um, the episode prior to this one is part one on our voting in America. Um, so listen to that one. Let us know if you have any questions. Subscribe, rate, and review. Yes, please get those stickers. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> if you leave a review on Apple Podcast, um, send us a screenshot of it and we will mail you a free Unjustly sticker. All right. Happy voting. See you at the polls. Bye. Bye. Citing false claims of non-citizens. What in the fuck? In 1787, the founding fathers grappled over how to adapt. It so begins. (laughs) (laughs) And so it begins. It's just part of the process. Mm -hmm. Entrance, Entrance exam. Oh my God.